Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please share this and other episodes direct from our social media accounts. Find links for our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages at bleedingdaylight.net. That's also where you'll find many other Bleeding Daylight episodes. What could have been a tragic end to a sporting event has turned into an opportunity to share hope with others. Today's guest talks about the strangers who saved his life. Today's guest has a passion for running, but it's a passion that almost cost him his life. In October 2019, he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest while running a 10-mile race and was saved by a group of strangers. We're going to explore that story in just a moment. Tyler Moon, thank you so much for your time on Bleeding Daylight. Yeah, Rodney, it's great to be here. Tell me about your passion for running. When did that start? Yeah, it's an interesting story for me in my running journey. I actually grew up playing uh, a lot of different sports, and none of them were really running, actually. Uh, I played uh, football, so I live in the United States of America, so American football for most of my life. And I actually played offensive line, so I was kind of a, a bigger guy, and running was not really my thing. But after I got out of college, uh, I wanted to lose some weight. Because of that, I started getting to running. So I was probably around 22 or 23 years old when I actually started to run and started to learn a lot about it and then actually gain kind of a passion and a love for it shortly thereafter. And then moved to taking part in various events, did it? Yeah, for sure. So I did a, a 5K, you know, kind of a, a shorter family Thanksgiving turkey trot, what, what we call it here. I did that shortly after college. A few years later, I actually was watching my future brother-in-law. He was running the Twin Cities Marathon, which is a big race here, the Twin Cities area. And I was really just encouraged by seeing all the people that were there, all the runners, all the spectators, different ethnicities and races and men and women all running. And it was really cool to see how you know all these people on the street were cheering them on. In that light, uh, knowing that I had been doing some running myself and seeing that opportunity to maybe do a marathon or do a, a fun race like that in the future, I decided to sign up for my own. Late 2018, early 2019 is when I signed up for my first, uh, let's call it maybe my first official race, and that was the Twin Cities 10 Mile. And what happened during that 10 mile that you were running? Yeah, so shortly after mile eight, I suffered a sudden cardiac arrest, which is something that we never imagined would ever happen. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was a pretty active person doing sports and running and training for this race. That incident was just something that was out of the blue. I have no family history of something like this happening either. When it happened, it really just shocked our our whole family. You mentioned that you signed up for this perhaps late 2018, early 2019, around that time. So it's not as if you just signed up the day before and weren't prepared. You had been training for some time. So there was nothing really that would have told you that something was likely to go wrong on the 6th of October in 2019. You're well prepared for it. And I imagine you were feeling like this is going to be a great event. Yeah, you're dead on, Rodney. It's really interesting, actually, to think about um, a couple weeks before the big race day, I had actually gone out for about an eight mile trading run to do my last big run before the event. And so to think, you know, fast forward a few weeks later that around that eight mile mark is where I had my 
cardiac arrest. Uh, it's really interesting to think why it happened, when it happened, and, and who was there to help me when everything went down. So I was training for it. I was ready for it. And uh, I live in Minnesota and uh, we have pretty harsh winters here is probably a good way to say it. But the fall is always a really special time because it cools down from the summer and you kind of just feel like you're you're in a really nice culture and climate. And so this October 6, 2019 was one of those perfect Minnesota fall days. Not only is the air nice and cool, but the the leaves are turning colors and it's just a beautiful environment. So that day when I showed up, I was not only prepared physically, but also just mentally, it was an awesome opportunity to go for that run and make a great effort out of it. It obviously turned uh, into something we didn't expect it would, but we're thankful for how everything happened. Around how many people take part in, in this event? Usually it's like tens of thousands of people that run on this specific day. So there's a 10 mile race in the morning and the marathon is later that day. But there are, man, I'd probably say like 30,000 people in total that are running that. And then on top of that, they have a bunch of spectators that are there as well. So it's an incredible vibe. You must have felt really good going into this. You'd done your preparation. You were ready to go, jostling for your space in amongst all these runners, and off you go. How were you feeling in that first eight miles before this cardiac arrest? Yeah, I was feeling really good. So this was, like I said, my first real big official race besides a a 5K turkey trot event with my family. So it was really exciting. You know, you have that vibe. You're in the corral uh, with all these people. They're pumping music and you're getting all excited. And so when the gun fired off, my first mile is actually the only mile that I have memory of. When I collapsed, they have a couple of different reasons why I don't have memory from mile one until I woke up uh, at the hospital. Um, It could be because I had a a concussion when I fell because it kind of fell right on my face, or it could be some of the um, anesthesia and medication they gave me when I went to the hospital because I was in a, a medically induced coma for a short period of time. So I don't have much memory from mile one to mile eight. But for me, the first mile was really, really great. And my family tells me that I was doing pretty well. I was wearing a, a watch that could track me as I ran and my time was looking really good. Things were all pointing in the right direction before the incident occurred. And I imagine that your wife, who at that stage was your fiance, that she was there ready to, to cheer you on, was she? Yeah, so she was there. My wife, she's awesome. She's always a great supporter of me and whatever I, I'm interested in at the time. So uh, she was there as well as my parents were there. So it's pretty cool to have them there cheering me on. And Amy dropped me off downtown Minneapolis early in the morning. And then I actually saw them at mile one, which was a really special moment. I stopped and said hi to them and went on my way. And I saw them again at mile seven. I don't remember what that interaction was like, but mile one was a pretty special moment for me and something that I think about often when I think about this story. Do you remember anything about going into that cardiac arrest or is that all now a blur for you? Yeah, it, it's all blur. There was one time we were watching a, a kind of a promotional video that the event organizers put on after the fact. And as I was watching that video, a few flashes of things came into my mind about the race, but nothing considering the cardiac arrest. So for me, it's just kind of a blur. And I, I learned from the people that saved me, honestly, what they saw, what they heard, what they did. And that's how I put it all together in my own head. Tell me, what were their recollections? What are the things that you have been told about that moment when you collapsed? Shortly after the eight-mile mark, I was running in you know, a decent-sized crowd, but there was a person in front of me. Um, his name is Dr. Morrison, and Dr. Morrison said that he heard me uh, take a really big sigh, and then I kind of fell just flat onto the pavement and in a way that alarmed him. 
he stopped and he kind of turned around and saw that. And then shortly after he was there, there was a group by the time it was, you know, we were going about 10 to 12 people that came to my aid, people that were runners, people that were just spectators, and then also uh, someone who was a, a, an actual race volunteer. And so after I kind of collapsed, this group came around me and they flipped me over and I was pretty bloodied up from falling. I, I really did fall kind of right on my face. And so when they flipped me over, they started to check my pulse and they shortly or quickly learned that they were all in the medical field. You know, they were speaking in medical terminology and people were understanding it and they were checking my pulse in different places. Someone just said, hey, I think we need to start CPR. This, this guy needs it right now. So they got in position and started giving me CPR. It's kind of like the same thing that you would learn in maybe you know middle school or, or high school, the chest compressions. And they actually had a breathing apparatus that eventually came. So they gave me some breaths as well. So they started doing CPR for about 10 to 15 minutes until an ambulance could come and um, an AED was on site to shock me back into a normal heart rhythm. Spoiler alert, you did survive, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) But how long did it take you to actually start to to recover, to respond to the CPR that you were receiving? Yeah, so shortly after all that happened, so they gave me CPR, they shocked my heart back into rhythm, and then they rushed me off to the hospital. So I don't have any memory of what it was like in the ambulance. I don't think I was awake for any of that. But they got me into the hospital, um, took me up to the ICU. And from there, they that's when they put me into that coma. So they had told my family that it would probably be a day or two before I came out of it. But I actually came out of it that night. Uh, my, my signs were good enough where they let me come out of it. And I was conscious and and kind of active, but I wasn't really, in my mind, I wasn't really there. I have no memory of it. I don't have any real thought about it. It really took me kind of two or three days for me to really, in my own consciousness, remember things, understand things, see things. I have a lot of stories about kind of the funny things that I was doing (laughs) in the meantime, but it took me kind of two or three days to kind of get my bearings back under me and really see the world for how I saw it beforehand. And obviously, you're only going by the things that people have told you after the event, but you would have had Amy there, you would have had your parents there, other people that loved you. What were they going through at that time when you're taken off to hospital, they say, we need to put this man into a coma? What was their thoughts? Yeah, so they were really shocked is probably the the understatement of that of the story. That there's no, I don't know if there's a word to even describe how they felt, but for, for them- the unique part was they were able to track me while I was running. So they could see on on their cell phones where I was going and, and where I was running. And so they were hoping to catch me uh, around mile 10 at the finish line. And my tracker was still going. So even though I had uh, actually collapsed at mile eight, for some reason, my tracker was showing that I was going to the finish line. And so my family had made their way down to the finish line. And when they got there, they couldn't find me. They couldn't contact me. They had to get a call from a police officer who told them that I had been uh, in an incident and they need to go to the hospital. And so at that time, I kind of you know worried them a little bit for sure, but they still didn't know exactly what had happened. They just knew there was an incident and I was going to the hospital and it could have been something like a concussion or it could have been something like a broken leg. When they got to the hospital and they heard everything, they just were floored. They were shocked at what they had heard and had to work through a lot of those emotions, the three of them together and start to think about what was the next step for me in my care. And you've mentioned there's no family history. There's nothing to suggest that this was actually on the cards. 
Were the doctors able to find out any reason for this or was it just one of those things that happened at that moment? So fortunately, we've been able to learn a lot about my heart over the last few years. So we're, I'm fortunate enough to live near the Mayo Clinic, which is in Minnesota, which is a really famous hospital in the United States. And through some testing there over the last three years, we've been able to discover a little unique arrhythmia, maybe you would call it, or a unique beat that I have in my heart at around 160 beats per minute, which is kind of a typical exercise heart rate for me. My heart goes into a, a couplet is what we call it. And it's kind of a double beat. So instead of following the normal heart rhythm, it kind of goes uh, bum bum really fast. And that is what they maybe think happened on October 6th is that it went into that double beat. And for whatever reason, it never got back out of that beat, which caused my heart to go into a really fast rhythm ventricle tachycardia is what the actual medical term is called. From there, it sent me off into a, a heart rate of probably like 300 beats per minute, which caused me to not have any blood pumping through my body and caused me to collapse. So the leading theory is that little couplet could have turned into a triplet or a quadruplet and so on and so forth to the point where my heart couldn't really even function. How long were you in the hospital before the doctors felt that you were well enough to release you? So I was there for about a week. Um, and after I, I left the hospital, I was actually wearing something called a life vest, which is a wearable defibrillator. So it kind of fits on like a harness underneath my clothes and it was tracking my, my heart rate. And then I kind of had a little battery pack that I had like slung over my shoulder, which I would wear everywhere. And it would read my heart. And if I went into a cardiac arrest again, that device would shock me back into to rhythm. So it's kind of a wearable AED in a way. That was where they sent me off with. So we weren't really sure if I would have another cardiac arrest. They were pretty certain that this was kind of an anomaly, a rare thing that was happening to me, but they weren't for, for certain. So that's why they sent me home with the life vest. One of the things that we do know about any kind of heart issue is that once the problem has been stabilized, then doctors will advise on some form of exercise to be able to, to help you along. But it's, it's usually quite gentle to start with, but you're not a quitter. What, what happened <laughs> at, at that point? You, you wanted to actually finish the race that you started, even though that was where all this trouble began. What did you do next? Yeah. So fortunately for us, my cardiologist is a great guy and he said, you know, you, you, you are medically cleared. You have your life vest. If something is to happen, you have that life vest, you're wearing it. So you should be okay. And we think the risk is fairly low. You're going to have one again. It's kind of some wheels started to spin in, in my mind. In, in the hospital, we had talked about finishing that race and going back and my family thought, you know, let's go finish it. Let's go walk it together. And in my mind, I was thinking, hey, let's go run that thing. Let's finish it off. Let's, you know, finish it the way that I started it and um, give it my best effort. So a couple of weeks after I left the hospital, we, we had my life vest on and we showed up to the spot kind of where everything happened. And my wife and I, so Amy, my fiance at the time, we, we just started to run together the final two miles. And we had a uh, invited some friends and family to said, Hey, well, we kind of gave them less than 24 hours notice. Hey, I'm going to go do this tomorrow. I'm just going to run on the street or on the sidewalk and uh, we'll meet you guys down at the Capitol, which is where the, the race finishes and uh, we'll just celebrate and, you know, be thankful for life. The word kind of got spread around our friend group. And then we actually 
got spread up to the police officer who actually called Amy on October 6th. And so she heard about this and she told her, her police chief and she said, hey, I'm actually going to do a police escort for this guy. So we're in the middle of St. Paul on a Saturday morning, early Saturday morning, and there's a police car escorting me and my, my wife down the street to the Capitol. It was a pretty unique opportunity for the final two miles of our, of our race. So you got to finish the race with just a few of you, get rid of all the thousands of others and just enjoy it. (laughs) Exactly. What was it like to get across that supposed finish line? You know, it's a great question, Rodney. I I think there was a lot of of tears. That's probably a good place to start. A lot of emotion just to be able to overcome such an incident like that and to be surrounded by friends and family and people that were there just to cheer us on. So my parents were obviously there the day that I ran, and they actually were there that morning. I finished the race, and Amy was running next to me, which is a, a, a cool metaphor for how we've all been you know, running together since October 6th through the medical ups and downs. Um, and then we had a, a group of friends, and then a group of, I would call them strangers, but people that kind of interacted with me throughout my cardiac arrest. So there was some ENT people there. There was actually someone who helped give me CPR showed up that day. And so it was just a really unique opportunity to bring this mixture of people together that have impacted my life in really unique ways and to be able to cross the finish line and show in a maybe a physical demonstration that we are and we can be stronger than the hard things that happen in our life. We have opportunity to overcome the challenges that we face every day and come out better on the other side. I know that you're a person of faith and a lot of people will wear their faith on their sleeve, but you were actually wearing your faith on your race bib, weren't you? Yeah, yeah that's a great way to way to put it, Rodney. I, I'm definitely a man of faith, Christian faith, and I'm proud to be a Christian and always improving and trying to be better than I was the day before. Always a refining process to, to be a Christian. So you mentioned I had Jesus saves or um, my faith, the name, the word Jesus saves was on my race bib, which is something that I didn't initially plan to put on there. I actually had my name on there because that's kind of what most people do is they put their name on their race bib or uh, maybe a nickname. And it's kind of fun to have your name on there because when you run by the groups of people, they can cheer you on, which is a really encouraging and fun way to keep motivated throughout the race. But at some point before the race, I just had this thought, you know, this is a really cool platform and an opportunity to share my faith in Jesus. So let's put something on my race bib that I can just share with somebody. And maybe uh, I could run by someone and they'll think, huh, I don't, I don't know who Jesus is, or I, you know, I haven't been close to the faith in a long time. Maybe I should go back to it and maybe just get their wheels spinning a little bit. So I just had this thought that I, I perceive now is a thought from God to put my race bib to Jesus saves. And that was just something to me that meant that Jesus saves us for eternity, not just uh, physically on earth, but for eternity and in heaven with him. So I put it on there, not really knowing anything that would happen in the future, I mean, it really came to be a great sign and symbol and also something that fortunately the media got a hold of and it was able to share a great message throughout our community and throughout the world. What sort of interest was there from the media at the time? Yeah, so initially there was just general interest in the fact that someone had a cardiac arrest and that they had a group of people save them and then that person was alive. So I think in general terms, that's a pretty interesting story for people to hear and and heartfelt and heartwarming that a group of strangers saved somebody and now that that person's still able to live. So that in and of itself, people were definitely interested of. 
Where it was even more interesting, I think, is the race bib, Jesus Saves. That was a pretty uh, cool thing, especially for those interested in faith. And then on top of that, there also was a, a person that helped me. And his, uh, his legal name is Jesse, or his, his real name is Jesse, but his legal name is actually Jesus. And so uh, he's like of Hispanic and Latino descent. So when the media kind of connected those two together, it really blew up from there and became kind of this, I would call it a miracle story, really. Interesting to that that guy would put Jesus saves on my race bib and also have someone there named Jesus to help bring me back to life. It's an amazing story. But in this time, where did your faith go? Because obviously you were saved, you got to the hospital, you came out of that coma and started to recover. But were there questions of faith at that point? Were there times where you thought, Jesus, why has this happened to me? What's going on? Yeah, that's a great question, Rodney. We were, my wife and I, we were really active in our church before this all happened. And so we were really strong. And in Matthew 7, they talk about living on the rock or living your life on sand. And so uh, we were really felt like we were built on the rock, on Jesus's teachings, on God's word. And so when this happened, although it was, it was really traumatic and really scary, when we were in the hospital, for, for me personally, there was a lot of peace and a lot of joy and thankfulness for where we were at. And shortly after, we kind of came to and, and caught our bearings because we had a lot of time in the hospital together. And it wasn't, you know, always cheerful time. And there was lots of hard things. But by the time we kind of came out of it, it was like, you know, we could do something really cool with this. You know, we can go finish the race and we can go encourage people. We can go share the message that Jesus does save in so many different ways. So um, we were felt really, really good about it. And my wife, tells a really cool story that when when she first came to the hospital, you know, and heard about this whole situation with my heart and being in the coma and everything, she was obviously stunned, but she just said in her in her heart and to God that she's like, I trust you, God. And whatever you decide for for me and for us, I trust you. And I, I put it into your hands. And so I think from that point on, uh, I didn't know that for a little bit of time until she told me that later on. But you know, she really led us in that in that time, and we worked together just to to praise God and honor Him, even through our our struggles and our cha- challenges. Of course, you didn't just leave it there either. You didn't just finish that race that had to stop because of a a little thing like a cardiac arrest. But <laughs> but you've continued on, and there's been different challenges since. That was 2019. What did you have in store for 2020? After we had finished the race um, in late October, early November, we actually, I actually went in to have surgery to put a defibrillator in. And so I have an internal defibrillator uh, inside of me that connects to my heart, which is similar to the life vest that we talked about earlier. But basically it's something that always is tracking my heart. And there's a battery inside of me that if my heart goes uh, haywire, it'll shock me back into rhythm. After that surgery, I had about three months to recover. So December, January, and February, I was kind of um, you know on the shelf, basically. We hadn't really thought about running again you know, long-term. There was still a lot of emotional and mental trauma that we were working through at the time. And so as we were getting closer to that February mark, when I was able to get back into some activity, I started to do a little bit of working out at our, at our gym, that I, at, our, at our workplace, and doing some light exercises and things like that just to stay active and stay healthy. Shortly thereafter, March of 2020 is when a lot of the COVID restrictions started to come down. And uh, we were home and getting outside and doing some activity was just a natural part of things. And we did a lot of walking and a little bit of running, but not too much. But it just seemed as the longer that we kind of stayed there and 
we were together in quarantine, this idea of of running again, going out there and doing something bigger and better than what we did the year before. So instead of doing a 10 mile, it was kind of this idea of like, you know, what if we did a marathon? What if we used all this new time that we have, all this opportunity to uh, spend with one another and use it to go running? What if we use that to encourage other people? And so the wheels just started to turn kind of in that March, April, May timeframe. Then about June is when we started to to train officially for that marathon race. And how did you partake in that? Because I, I know that you were ready to to run again. What about Amy? Was she convinced that she should run alongside you this time? In January of 2020 is when we got married. And so if we look at the story from a larger picture, October was my cardiac arrest. Uh, November, we finished the race. November, I had surgery. January, we, we got married. And then March was when COVID happened. And so there was a lot of change happening, not only um, with, with my heart, but also in our marriage. And so uh, working through that was definitely something that was important to us, something that we had to intentionally work at every day to make sure that we were both on the same page. And so Amy and I experienced my cardiac arrest in totally different ways. And so it was working through some of that emotional trauma together and being able to come out on the other side and not only be okay with running, but kind of encourage each other towards that. And so the agreement that we came out with at the end was that she would rollerblade next to me while I ran the race and while I trained. So in the Minneapolis area, we have lots of great trails and different areas for runners and bikers and and rollerbladers. So through a lot of our conversations and different thoughts and things like that, it was deemed that she could rollerblade on the pavement and I could run on the grass or maybe uh, hop on the pavement every once in a while as well. And that way we'd both feel supported and okay while I was able to, to run that race. Now, you've got a better heart rate monitor than all the other runners with their, their watches or, or uh, chest straps. <laughs> so, so you've got a right. certain amount of confidence there. But was there this overshadowing of that event thinking, what if it happens again? Yeah, there definitely was for me, something I thought about a decent amount. And fortunately, we had been really intentional about the medical intervention that we've had. We've been really diligent in following doctor's orders and, and trusting them in terms of rest, relaxation, training, different things like that. So we always deferred to the doctors and what they had decided was best for me. So they gave us a lot of assurance that I could run and that I was pretty low risk of this happening again. But at the same time, they tell you that you just never know either, right? We just, we can't predict the future. For me, there was some thought in the back of my mind that it could happen again. Uh, But fortunately, because of my defibrillator, we do have some confidence there to say, you know, if it does happen, we know that we have, we can maybe call it a backup plan to shock me back and bring me back to life. And so we do have a lot of faith and and trust from a kind of a worldly perspective in in my device. Uh, But ultimately, the real kicker is that I really felt called to this race. I really felt called to it by God to go run and go encourage and go share the message of Jesus again. So with that in mind, we really had nothing to fear. And even if the defibrillator doesn't work, we know that we're doing what God wants us to do and going to run that race. And it must have been enormously satisfying to finish that race, knowing what you had been through in the past. It was a really cool opportunity. And because it was that COVID timeframe, the official race was turned into a virtual marathon, uh, which worked out really great for us because that allowed Amy to not only train with me on rollerblades, but actually do the whole marathon with me on her rollerblades. That's something that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were doing the official race. And so when we were able to 
run that whole marathon together and get to the end. It was a really special opportunity. Once again, we had some friends and family that were there. And it was honestly, it was so cold. It was like 18 degrees Fahrenheit in Minnesota that day. It was super cold, not a perfect fall morning, but almost like a winter morning here to get to the end of it and to feel so accomplished with once again, friends and family nearby was a really cool way to just share God's love and what his power is in all of our challenges and trials. 2021 brought some changes to your running and there were some really special things that happened with some of the events that you took part in, wasn't there? Yeah, it was, a, it was a great year. And honestly, it was a year that I, I didn't really think I was going to do very much in 2021. But uh, a friend of mine, and actually it's Jesse, so Jesus, who gave me CPR in 2019, Jesse and uh, him and I and Amy and our families had gotten pretty close over the last couple of years. And so uh, he had kind of mentioned to me that he was going to do some running in 2021. And I wasn't super interested right away. I was kind of like, you know, we've, we've done the 10 mile again. We've done the marathon. I think we're okay. But the longer I sat on that, the longer I kind of didn't sign up for a race with him, the more I kind of wanted to. Uh, Amy and I, we prayed about it and talked about it. And eventually we decided to sign up to run not just one race, but three races. So it's something called the Looney Challenge, which in Minnesota, uh, the state bird of Minnesota is a, is a common loon. And they have this race called the Looney Challenge because if you run it, you're maybe a little bit loony. That's kind of the thought. It's three races over the course of two days, a 10K, a 5K, and then a 10 mile. The idea was that I would run the 10K with my dad on Saturday morning, the 5K with Amy shortly after that, and then the 10 mile I'd run with Jesse, and we'd run that together, the same race that he gave me CPR on two years prior. And so that was just a really cool opportunity, just a unique way to continue to bring uh, this intersection of faith and family and running all together to encourage people and to help them face the challenges and trials that they have in their life every single day. How have all these events strengthened your faith? They've really just given me a stronger conviction and a stronger reminder of uh, how God moves in 2022 or 2019 or 2020 or 2021. You know, I think it can be easy to see God in the Bible or easy to see him in other people's lives, but to really experience his, his power and his strength inside of me through these different instances is really a, a convicting and encouraging thing. And I think on top of that too, I've just seen, um, and I think I've been a lot stronger in my faith in just sharing it and sharing with people what God has done in my life and just not being ashamed of that or worried about uh, what others might think, obviously always in a respectful way, but to experience that power that Jesus provided to me to overcome these challenges, I just I just want the whole world to know about it. And so it's exciting to be able to, to share it through different events like a podcast like this or public speaking or even just conversations with people at the market or, or coffee shop or wherever else we might be. Yeah, I was going to say, you do have opportunity to continue to share this story of, of what you've been through and, and the faith that undergirds it all on places like this podcast. But what have been the other opportunities that have presented themselves for you to tell that story and to shine the light on Jesus? Yes, yeah, so we've been able to do a few different things. Pre-COVID, I was able to speak at uh, my, my home church, my original church growing up at a service, which was uh, super unique and, and really meaningful. Been able to speak to, to students kind of in, in youth groups as well as, you know, school assemblies. And then I also was able to speak at the company that makes my or made my uh, defibrillator. And so that one wasn't from a Christian perspective, but I was able to speak virtually with Medtronic 
who made my device. And so that was a cool opportunity just to encourage them and to share with them how their work every single day has really blessed me and given me the confidence and the ability to uh, continue to run and uh, live my life in the way that we think we're called to do it. Have there been opportunities to come alongside other people that have gone through their own medical emergencies? Oh, for sure. And that's honestly been one of the most fruitful things about having a tough experience is to be able to share some of the trials and triumphs with other people. About a year and a half, maybe a year after my cardiac arrest, we got connected with a couple who's similar age to me and Amy, who had just gone through a cardiac arrest as well. The guy in the couple, his name is Kyle, he he had suffered a cardiac arrest kind of while he was at work. He was in a parked car, but he had this really unique, you know, miracle experience as well. And he was, uh, you know, saved and, and able to live another day. And so to be able to talk to him and his wife and share in that experience together was not only uh, encouraging for them, I think, but also super encouraging for us to just remind us that, you know, God has a plan. And he's able to, to use even our lowest points to encourage other people. And so that's really just been a encourager for me as I continue to share, continue to to bring this message to other people. When you see the impact of what you're sharing with others, it just makes you want to do it more. We just had a quick Zoom call with them, which we thought it was going to be quick, but we, I think we were on the phone for like an hour together and we had never met these people before. So it was a really cool opportunity to share that message and continue to share it with with other people who are going through some tough stuff. You started out with a variety of sports. You went into running. We know what happened there. What are your thoughts going forward in the sporting arena? Are you going to continue to run? Are there other sports that you'd like to tackle in the coming days? This summer, and I I do honestly mean this, I don't think we're going to be doing too much running in terms of races and things like that. I'll definitely still want to stay active with different running and different exercises. But I know we we recently purchased some some bikes during the COVID time, and uh, we like to use those. So maybe some biking. I think triathlons kind of are a natural thing. So swimming, biking, running as well as maybe getting back into the into the gym. So I, I grew up playing football and doing you know, lots of weightlifting and things like that. So maybe getting back into the gym and grabbing a barbell or some dumbbells and doing that again would be exciting and fun after a, a hiatus for a bit. It's so good to hear your story, to hear what's come out of it, the opportunities that have presented themselves. I'm wondering if someone wanted to get in touch with you, find out more about your story, where's the easiest place for them to connect with you? Yeah, so there's two easy ways to connect with me. The first one is on LinkedIn. So my name, Tyler Moon, live in Minneapolis. So if that can narrow it down for for you on LinkedIn. Um, The second way, which might be even easier, is on Instagram. So my wife and I, we've started a a ministry called Moon Family Ministries. Our last name is Moon, so Moon Family Ministries. And we're on Instagram, and we are going to be posting different updates and things like that on there to be able to share with people and connect with people as they uh, go on their journeys. I look forward to hearing more about the opportunities that God presents for you as you continue to go forward. And, And Moon Family Ministry sounds like a wonderful opportunity. But Tyler, I do want to thank you for your time of being on Bleeding Daylight today. Thank you. Thanks, Rodney. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.